continuing in the book of Genesis, we're in Genesis chapter 29. We're going to be looking at Genesis 29 and 30 uh, this evening. What a powerful song that we sang, that the power of the name of Jesus, you know, his character, his person, his work in our lives that casts out darkness and fear. And so let's just pray that over our lives this evening as we go into the word. So, Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your love for us, your grace and your mercy. And God, we're hopeless uh, without you. So we do pray your name your character, your nature, your promises over our lives, over our families, Lord, over our church and our community. God, we ask that you would do a great work as churches throughout the city celebrate the resurrection of Christ, that there would be great fruit as the gospel is proclaimed, and that the lost would be found and they they would be saved. And God, we welcome your work in our lives and into our city. Lord, as we look at the life of Jacob tonight, we pray that we would learn more about your character, that we would learn to trust you and trust that you're working in the mess and the chaos of our lives. And we love you in Jesus' name, amen. Jacob's life is an absolute mess. Here he is, deceived his dad, pretends to be his brother, and gets away with it until his brother comes in and wants to kill him and forces him to then flee for his life. His mom instructs him to go to Laban's house, to his uncle's house, her brother's house, to ultimately pursue a bride. As he's fleeing, God was gracious to meet him in Bethel, say, look, Jacob, I'm going to bless your life. And as we see Jacob's marriage begins, I don't know if there's any rockier beginning of a marriage than Jacob uh, experiences. In these two chapters, there's no way to really describe it other than it's just a mess. It's just an absolute mess. But as we'll study tonight, this is the beginnings of the nation of Israel. This is how God births his chosen people, the 12 tribes, through this mess that we're calling Jacob's family. Then through one tribe, through the tribe of Judah, Jesus is born. So it's Christ in the mess. And I think a lot of times uh, we place a lot of pressure on ourselves as Christian families. We want to do well in our family relationships And there's so much teaching on how to be a godly husband and how to be a godly wife and a godly parent and even how to respect your parents in the way that God would want. I mean, the volumes, if we were to take all of the books that have been written on Christian home life, they they would just go through the roof, wouldn't they, compared to even other topics. And then the problem is, is we can't live up to the standard. There's nothing really wrong with the material. The material is great stuff. We go, man, I I really aspire to that, but our experience can be a lot more like Jacob's experience. And we go, man, there's mess. There's, There's mess in my family. There's mess in my relationships. And to trust that God is working in the midst of the mess, that God is bringing redemption in the midst of the the mess. And so that is our aim tonight, and that's our our hope this evening. So let's look at verse 1 of chapter 29. So Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. So he follows his mom's instruction and heads to the east, ultimately to his uncle Laban's house. And he looked and saw a well in the field, and behold, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it. For out of that well they watered the flocks. A large stone was on the well's mouth. Now all the flocks would be gathered there, and they would roll the stone from the well's mouth, water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place on the well's mouth. So here comes Jacob, and he sees the three herds of sheep, and don't worry, no sheep jokes tonight, okay? I'll spare you of any uh, sheep jokes this evening. And he finds the flocks of sheep, and but it, they're waiting. They're all waiting for the stone to be removed in order that the sheep can be watered. And Jacob said to them, my brethren, where are you from? And they said, we are from Haran. Then he said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, we know him. So he's like, all right, I'm on the right track. Do you know my uncle Laban? Yeah, we know him. 
So he said to them, is he well? And they said, he is well. And look, his daughter Rachel is coming with the sheep. This is great timing for Jacob. I mean, he's coming to Laban's house to hopefully pursue a wife. And here comes Laban's daughter Rachel in this first introduction to Laban's family. Then he said, look, it is still high day. It's not time for the cattle to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go and feed them. So he's saying, why are the sheep gathered together like this? They should be out grazing. Why are we sitting here and and waiting to water them? Let's go ahead and water them, and then they can go out uh, to pasture. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together, and they have rolled the stone from the well's mouth. Then we will water the sheep. So we're waiting for all of the sheep to be gathered together. Then the stone will be removed from the well, and the sheep will be watered. Now, while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And it came to pass, when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban in, watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother." So there is definitely romantic interest taking place for Jacob. We're going to see that in the next verse. And for us, we're like, gross, this is kissing cousins, right? But this was much more common at at this time to to marry marry inside of the family. Thankfully, it's not that way now, right? And so he's attracted to uh, his cousin, and testosterone just kicks in. He's like, why? Why are we waiting here for this stone to be removed? And then... (laughs) Then here comes this beautiful gal, and he's like, he's all bowed out. I just learned now that the cool term is swole. Like, when young people work out, they go up to, you look really swole. So, so here's Jacob, he's all, he's all swole. He's just, he's feeling bowed out, and he's like, hey, Rachel, did you, did you see that one, right? So, it's funny how thousands of years go by, but things don't really change. I'm pretty sure this is happening in the high school room tonight as we speak. Now, verse 11 is surprising. He goes from removing the stone, not a lot of introduction. We don't see really any introduction. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. Must have been some kiss, right? It was either really good or really awful, one of the two, but seems like he was overwhelmed with goodness. He's like, wow, this is amazing, and his emotions get the best of him, and he just just starts crying, and I've often wondered, what did Rachel think, right? We don't see her weeping tears of joy. She's like, what in the world was that, right? You know, here I was just bringing my sheep to the well, and this guy I've never seen before decides that He's so overcome that he wants to, to kiss me, and then he was, he was crying. And that's some way for a relationship to start, right? Verse 12, and Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's relative and that he was Rebekah's son, so she ran and told her father. So she does seem to be excited as well, and she goes back and she tells her father. I really like that, that here is something that's happening in Rachel's life that she's willing to go and talk to her uh, dad about it. And I think that's what we desire as dads with daughters, that our daughters would trust us enough to say, hey, this is what's going on, and and run and be able to to tell us what has uh, taken place. Verse 13, Then it came to pass when Laban heard the report about Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him. So he's excited too, and embraced him and kissed him, and brought him to his house. There's just a lot of kissing going on here. And obviously, this is a different kind of kiss between Laban and Jacob. This is the common Middle Eastern greeting that takes place to this day. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. So he welcomes him in to the family. He's like, Yeah, you're my sister's son. You're my nephew. Of course you can uh, stay with me. God is going to use... Laban as his tool to craft Jack, Jacob's character. There's things that need to be worked out of Jacob, and so he's going to use Laban to do this in his life. Then Jacob, then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? 
tell me, what should your wage, wages be? So it seems that Jacob is going to stick around. He's doing work, and he's saying, instead of you working uh, for free, what do you want your wage to be? Now, Jacob's been thinking about this. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. Leah's name means weary. That was the name that was given to her, so not necessarily a desired name. How would you like your name to to mean weary? Rachel, her name means little lamb, so much more of a, a pleasant name. Laban, it says that her eyes were delicate. This word delicate, it means tender or soft, the overall idea is faint-hearted. Kind of, she had weak eyes, or she, she, was, she was faint-hearted. Then we find of Rachel that she had stunning outward beauty. And so she was very beautifully outwardly. Now, Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. So he says, now that we're talking about wages, I'd like to marry Rachel. And I'm willing to work for seven years in order to marry Rachel because I love her. Now, this was customary that there would be a dowry that would be given in order to marry someone's daughter. Jacob doesn't have a dowry to give, so he says, I'm willing to work for seven years. This is an extravagant dowry. He did not want to be turned down. You know, he didn't want to offer one year and then have Laban say, sorry, pack sand. That's not a a good enough offer. So he offers to work for uh, seven years. And Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than that I should give her to another man. Stay with me. So he says, okay, yeah, let's do this. It's better for me to give her to you. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed only a few days to him because of the love that he had for her. He works for seven years, but it seems only as a few days because he loved her. This is a labor of love. And ultimately, I think it points to when Christ gets a hold of our hearts and our lives, that we don't see it as a burden to serve the Lord, but it's the love of Christ that compels us. Based on the mercies of God, the love of God, that we present ourselves as a living sacrifice unto the Lord. Those times where it seems like a labor or a burden to follow the Lord, we've probably lost sight of that love. Christ, you love me, and so... I want to love you, and it's not a burden to to love you. It just seemed like a few days uh, to Jacob. We also see that Jacob shows love and that he's willing to wait for Rachel. Love is patient and and love is kind. Lust doesn't wait, especially when it comes to romantic relationships, right? Lust says, I've got to have you right now or else. For those of you that are single and you're dating someone and they're saying, you know, I can't wait If you love me, then you'll have sex with me right now. That's not a godly type of love. That's lust because love's willing to wait. Love's saying, you know, I'm willing to wait for the right time. I'm willing to wait upon the Lord. I'm I'm willing to do the work that's necessary in order to enter into this relationship of you being my spouse. But lust says, no, this has got to happen right now. Verse 21, then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife for my days are fulfilled that I may go into her. It seems that Jacob is counting the days. He gets to the seven years and he's like, okay, Laban, not a day more. It's been seven years, but he has to remind Laban. Say, I've fulfilled the agreement. I've fulfilled the contract. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. Now it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. And Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. So it came to pass in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? This is quite the switcheroo. Can you imagine? Wake up on your honeymoon to the wrong person? How did this happen? How did this take place? Well, it was customary for the bride to be in a very thick veil. And so as she comes to the wedding ceremony, she's in this veil. And then the veil would not be unveiled. 
until they're on their honeymoon and it's dark. So it would have been pretty easy for Laban to be able to pull this off. But what is the deeper story here? What's the deeper lesson that is taking place? Is Jacob is a deceiver, right? Jacob pretended to be somebody he wasn't. He pretended to be the oldest and tricked his father. Here, Leah is pretending to be the youngest. Laban is a mirror of himself. God is saying, Jacob, this is what your deception looks like. And God in his love sometimes will use very creative ways to teach us and instruct us and disciple us. Is he'll bring a person into our lives that's a mirror of ourselves. And we go, I don't like being treated like this. And the Lord very quietly whispers, well, that's the way you treat other people. And the Lord says this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever man sows, that will he also reap. So Jacob set this in motion. He sowed this life of deception, and now he's on the receiving end of it. And I bet he had to stop and think, how did my dad feel when he was deceived? How did Esau feel when he was deceived? So God, in his grace, he forgives us, but also in his grace, he allows us to reap what we sow. He allows us to be on the receiving end of what we dish out to others. Verse 26, and Laban said, it must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. It would have been nice to know this before we entered into this contract. We've been seven years into this deal and you could have very early on said, well, wait a second. It's customary that the older gets married first. So we've got to make sure that Leah gets married. Are you interested in marrying Leah. So this deception has been coming for a long time from Laban. Verse 27, fulfill her week and we will give you this one also for the service with which you will serve with me still another seven years. What Laban's really looking for is another seven years of labor from Jacob. He's saying, okay, if you want Rachel, you can still have Rachel. Just agree to work for me for another seven years. In verse 28, then Jacob did so and fulfilled her week. So he gave him his daughter Rachel as a wife also. And Laban gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as a maid. Then Jacob also went into Rachel. And he also loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served with Laban still another seven years. So it's clear from verse 30 that it wasn't that Jacob had to work another seven years before he married Rachel, that he was able to marry Rachel at that point, but then he owed Laban another seven years. So it wasn't that him and Rachel had to wait 14 years total. So in one week, what's happened in the life of Jacob? He receives a bride with her maid. Then all of a sudden, he receives a second bride with her maid, all of a sudden, four women have come into his life at one week's time. Good luck for Jacob, right? I mean, polygamy is a really bad idea always, but especially polygamy with sisters. And we're going to see this play out, right? These sisters had to have been competitive with each other growing up, and now they're going to compete for the affection of uh, their husband. We have a lesson here that Jesus will use where he says that you can't serve two masters. You'll love one and you'll hate another. And when we see polygamy in the scriptures, always the husband tends to lean in one direction. It's impossible to love both wives the same. And Jesus says, look, in the same way, you're either going to love me or you're going to love money. Something is going to master you. We can't take our love for Christ and equally divide it with an idol. Well, it's going to get a lot more interesting as we keep going here tonight. In verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So it's very clear that Jacob loved Rachel, and he didn't love Leah. And God sees Leah in this state. And most likely, Leah and Rachel, unfortunately, didn't have a lot of say in this decision. They were probably really under 
everything their father would say, even down to the point of marriage. We don't know that for sure, but that was definitely the culture uh, at this time. So God sees Leah and sees it, she's unloved, and chooses to allow her womb to be open and to have children, but Rachel was barren. So God sees the unloved. He sees the unloved. He has a heart for the unloved. He's the advocate of the unloved. Do you feel like in your family situation, maybe you're unloved? Maybe growing up, you were the one that was passed over or not given enough attention. Or as you went through your school years, you were unloved. Or most of your life, you felt, man, no one is paying attention to me. Well, God's paying attention to you. God hears you. God God loves you. God's heart for uh, the unloved. Rachel is barren. Also, Sarah was barren, and Rebecca was, was barren. So a lot of barrenness already in the study of Genesis. So Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, The Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. It's very interesting as we go through this to see the meanings of these names. The Hebrews are are very big on the the meaning of the names for their children. So Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, his name literally means behold a son. And she's looking at her husband and saying, look, I have given you a son. I've given you a, a child. So now please, would you pay attention to me? Now, please, will you give me your affection? And and she's thinking that by having a son, that now Jacob is going uh, to love her. Now, please uh, take note of this. This is the beginning of the nation of Israel. Reuben is the firstborn of the tribes of Israel. Jacob's sons are going to be the 12 tribes of Israel. What can we learn from this is that a child is not going to fix a relationship. And that's still believed today, unfortunately, isn't it? Maybe uh, a couple's together and they're not married and they're living outside of God's design and they think, well, man, if if we have a child, somehow that's going to bring our relationship together. That's going to bring permanency to our relationship. Or a couple is married and they're not dealing with issues inside of their marriage. They're not learning how to love each other the way that God would desire. And they think, oh, man, if... If we have a child, then I'm going to have my husband's affection. Or I'm going to have my wife's uh, affection if we have a child together. And a child's not going to fix a marriage or or fix a relationship. Or if you're thinking, I I need to have a child in order to get this man's affection, uh, that doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. It's better to dig deep and to try to work on the issues and see the Lord do a work and bring about a, a healing. Verse 33, then she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. And Simeon means heard. God has heard that I'm unloved and he has responded to this. And so he's given me Simeon. Can, Can you imagine how difficult this is? Leah just knows it. She knows she's not loved by, by Jacob, that Jacob loves Rachel, but she says, God has heard that I'm unloved. So we're two sons in, okay? We've got nine more sons to go and one daughter. A lot of pregnancies here. Verse 34, she conceived again and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And this is the tribe of Levi, that is over all of the priestly responsibilities in the Old Testament. And here's her thinking. Leah's thinking, okay, this is my third son that I'm giving to Jacob. Rachel has not been able to have kids. For sure, he's going to be attached to me now. And so Levi, his name means attached. In verse 35, and she conceived again and bore a son and said, now I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she stopped bearing This is so significant in verse 35 because she names this fourth son something different. She says, Judah, and Judah means praise. She says, I'm naming him Judah because I will praise the Lord. Her circumstance hasn't changed, but her perspective has. She seems to have put 
her affection upon the Lord and not upon her husband. Her whole expectation is upon her husband, that her husband's going to give her love, that her husband's going to be attached to her. All rightful things for a wife to expect, but she comes to realize, okay, that's not happening, and she chooses with this fourth son to put her attention upon the Lord and say, I'm going to praise the Lord. I'm going to name this fourth son something different in a different vein, and it has to do with my relationship with the Lord. And this is the foundation to any good marriage, is if two individuals are looking to and loving the Lord. If we're looking to our spouse, first and foremost, to fulfill us, that can't happen. But as we fall in love with the Lord, then we're going to be able to adequately love each other, because Christ is the one that's giving us the ability to be able to love. Maybe that's exactly what you needed to hear tonight. Maybe you find yourself in the midst of a difficult marriage or you find yourself in a broken marriage. There's been a lot of hurt. Your your single relationships have, have beaten you up in the past and you're looking at human relationships to satisfy. You can relate to what Leah's going through and you say, I get it. I need to put my affection upon the Lord. I need to make my priority worship to praise the Lord. And then who comes from the tribe of Judah? Jesus. Jesus is born from the tribe of Judah. Now, if we were setting up a chosen people, a one holy nation, what would be the beginnings of this holy nation? Oh, we're looking for a godly heritage. We're looking for a family who's done it right. We're looking for an example for others to be able to follow. And then if we're going to pick one particular tribe, I don't know about you, but hands down, I'd be picking Joseph, right? Because he's the one that kind of stands out out of this group of 12 sons. But God doesn't pick Joseph. God picks Judah. God picks this broken family where there's mess and there's dysfunction. And he's like, these are going to be my chosen people. These 12 brothers that come from this very twisted family line that all comes from from Jacob. And bam, this is the line of Christ. And it brings us great hope in our lives, doesn't it? It shows us the grace of God from the very beginning. So chapter 30, verse 1. Now when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said to Jacob, give me children or else I die. Right? So she's looking over at her sister as her sister's bouncing these four boys on her knee and they practically got their own basketball team going by this time. I mean, there's just one more son and they've got the starting lineup for the Denver Nuggets, right? And she's over here, no children, barren, barren, barren. Another month goes by and she's not pregnant and it says that she envied her sister, There's a quote by Harold Coffin that says this, envy is the art of counting the other fellow's blessings instead of your own. It's the art of counting someone else's blessings instead of your own. It's easy to be in Rachel's shoes and look at a sibling, a friend, a brother or sister in Christ and go, they sneeze and they get blessed. They trip and they get blessed. Every time that they seem to take a step. It just seems to be blessed. But here I am in a difficult situation. Here I am barren. Nothing seems to be going my way. So here is Leah choosing praise and Rachel is choosing envy and she just lets it out on her husband. She says, you Jacob give me children or else I die. And it shows where her priority is. It's like, I've got to have kids. If I don't have kids, then I'm going to die. And we fill in the blank If there's that expression in our lives, I've got to have this relationship or I'm going to die. I've got to have this raise or I'm going to die. I've got to have this car or I'm going to die. And maybe sometimes we wouldn't be as bold to say it the way that Rachel did, but that's exactly what our heart is feeling. In verse 2, And Jacob's anger was aroused against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God? who has withered from you the fruit of the womb. Excuse me. Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? So he says, look, am I God 
Am I the one that's withholding from you the ability to have a child? But I feel that Jacob misses it here just a little bit, and that's because he was aroused in anger. Rachel's really hurting. That's the bottom line here, isn't it? She's hurting over the reality that she can't have kids. And she's taking it out on her husband, and instead, he he chooses to respond in anger. I think there's something for us to learn here, husbands. If there's something that's taking place in our homes, in our marriages, in the lives of our children, it can be easy for us to get angry. But all we're doing is adding more problem to the situation. Pastor Robert, our assistant pastor, he often says, in order to help solve a problem, you can't be a problem. So if there's emotion that's taking place and things that are happening to try, try to help solve that problem, you can't be a problem. And as soon as husbands, as we respond in anger, then we're adding to the problem. And God doesn't do his work inside of our anger. The wrath of man doesn't produce the, the righteousness of God. And so Jacob could have said something similar and said it in love and said it in compassion. Or he could have seen the heart of Rachel and how she was broken because she wasn't able to have kids. In verse 3, so she said, here is my maid Bilhah, go into her and she will bear a child on my knees that I also may have children by her. Sound familiar? Sarah, Hagar, Abraham. Then she gave him Bilhah, her maid, as a wife and Jacob went into her and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged my case, and he also has heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan, and Dan means judge. God has judged in my favor. That was Rachel's interpretation of the events. What we don't see in Jacob is leadership. We don't see Jacob seeking the Lord or encouraging his family to seek the Lord. He's like, okay, this makes sense to me. Why wouldn't I have sex with you're made, and then we can have children. And, and this whole system just kind of causes your heart to break for, for women. And when God's design takes place, it's the absolute best for men and women because it's his design. Because Bilhah, in this situation here, she gets pregnant and she has a son, but then the son's given over to Rachel, that Rachel would raise the son because she's the maid and, and Rachel is, is the wife. And you're just like, oh my, oh my, Right? Verse 7, and Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son, a second son to Rachel. Then Rachel said, with great wrestling, I've wrestled with my sister and indeed I have prevailed. So she shall be called, so so she called his name Naphtali. Naphtali means wrestling. I have been wrestling my sister for a long time, as long as I can remember and I have finally won. That was Rachel's uh, interpretation. Interesting to be the boys growing up in this home. So, how did you get your name? I know that your name means wrestler. Are you a great wrestler? Well, not really. I mean, I was given this name because mom was wrestling with my aunt. And I guess that she felt like she won when I was born, and so they, they called me wrestling. I'm, I'm the wrestler who has uh, prevailed. So Bilhah has her second child that's commissioned over to Rachel. Verse 9, then when Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took Zilpah, her maid, and gave her to Jacob as wife. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, a troop comes. So she called his name Gad, and Gad means troop. She's like, I got a whole troop. Bring in the reinforcements, right? There's, there's five on our scorecard now. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, I am happy for the daughters will call me blessed. So she called him Asher, and Asher literally means happy. But as you read this closely, why is she happy? She's happy because she has status with other women. Her children had brought her status with other women, and that made her happy. She's looking to her children to give her identity and give her a sense of worth. And there's a lot of pressure on us as parents to fall into this. What are other people saying about our kids? 
And if they're saying good things about our kids, then that brings us validation. But if they're saying bad things about our kids, then we feel like a failure. And so she's happy because she sees this as having validation with others. Now Reuben went in the days of wheat harvest and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. Now what in the world are mandrakes? They thought to be aphrodisiacs to help with fertility. If this story could have gotten stranger, it just got stranger, right? So they find these mandrakes that are supposed to help with fertility, and Rachel's like, I need that. I I can't have kids. Verse 15, but she said to her, it is, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? And Rachel said, therefore, he will lie with you tonight for your son's mandrakes. So Rachel seems to be the chief lady. If you, as you read this story, she's calling the shots because she's the one who's favored. She's the one who's loved. And so she's like, well, if you give me the mandrakes, then I'll let you sleep with Jacob tonight. And Leah's like, okay, deal. You're sold. Verse 16. When Jacob came out of the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me, for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. And he lay with her that night. You know, Jacob throughout this whole chapter is a willing participant. It's like, you know, so she's like, I purchased you tonight. You're with me. And he's like, okay. But sex is never to be a bartering tool, right? It's never to be something that you barter with to, to be able to, to get your way. It's a, it's a loving expression between a husband and wife inside of this commitment of marriage. And we, we see how when God's design gets out of order, things get very twisted. God's design being one man with one woman uh, for life. In verse 17, and God listened to Leah and she conceived and bore a fifth son. So she wasn't having children, but then on this night where she purchased her husband with mandrakes, God allows her to be able to conceive. God hears her prayer. And Leah said, God has given me my wages because I have given my maid to my husband. So she called his name Ishikar, which means wages. This is even worse than being called the wrestler, right? So how did you get your name? Well, I bought your dad for the night. So we just called you paycheck, right? <laughs> we, we just called you wages. And he's like, okay, I, you know, when we look at the 12 tribes of Ishikar and we hear all of the names of the 12 tribes of Ishikar, Asher and, and Reuben and Joseph and Ishikar, we don't think of this story, do we? We almost think of this great royalty, but it had this beginnings of a mess where God's grace needed to be expressed. Verse 19, then Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. And Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will dwell with me because I've borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. So she had four kids, stopped having kids for a while, then had two more. And Zebulun means dwelling, believing that her husband is going to dwell with her. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Diane. Diana, poor gal. We see her being the only girl in this line of boys, right? Dinah. There, I got it right. Dinah. I knew I was off a little bit. Dinah. What does her name mean? Her name means avenged or or vindicated, and she's growing up in these world of brothers. Verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. So Sarah has been barren. Rebecca has been barren. Rachel is barren. We'll see Elizabeth in the New Testament is barren. And God chooses now at this point to open her womb. And what we know for sure is God is the one who opens and closes the womb. When you really study conception, each child that is conceived is a miracle from God. God is involved in the midst of of that. Verse 23, And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. So she called his name Joseph and said, the Lord shall add to me another son. So can you see why 
Joseph was so hated by his brothers? This causes the story of Joseph to make a lot of sense. Because Joseph is the only son of Rachel, the loved wife. And then you have all of these other brothers where they come from Leah or they come from maids. But here's the golden boy, Joseph, that is loved by the father more than the other sons. And it creates this environment for jealousy. Joseph's name means he will add. As Rachel has Joseph, she's not content She's saying, God's going to give me one more son. That's literally what Joseph's name means. And God does give her another son, Benjamin, and she dies in childbirth. And a lot of times in our lives, if we're not thankful for what he's doing now and content for what he has given us, we're constantly going to say, one more. Add one more, Lord. Just, just one more. Just one more. Just one more. When's enough? Well, just a little bit more. So we don't see Rachel responding by going, oh, thank you so much that I was able to have a child. I long to have a child. You heard my prayer. You opened my, my womb. Her cry is, Lord, give me one more. Add on one more. In verse 25, And it came to pass when Rachel had bore Joseph that Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own place and to my own country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I've served you and let me go for you know my service which I have done for you. Jacob's realizing that it's unhealthy with Laban. He says, I need to move away from you and he makes that request. And Laban said to him, please stay here if I have found favor in your eyes for I've learned by experience that God has blessed me for your sake. Laban says, I know I've been blessed by God because of you. So even in the midst of all this dysfunction in Jacob's family, God is still blessing. In verse 28, then he said, name me your wage and I will give it. Jacob must have been saying, we've already been through this, right? But Jacob comes up with a wage. So Jacob said to him, you know how I've served you and how your livestock have been with me. For what you had before I came was little and it has increased to a great amount. The Lord had blessed you since my coming, and now when shall I also provide for my own house? So he said, what shall I give you? And Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you will do this thing for me, I will again feed and keep your flocks. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from there all the speckled and spotted sheep and all the brown ones among the lambs and the spotted and the speckled among the goats, and these shall be my wages. So my righteousness will answer for me in time to come. When the subject of my wages comes before you, every one that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and brown among the lambs will be considered stolen if it is with me. So give me all of the speckled and spotted goats, and then the rest will be yours, and the speckled and spotted speckled and spotted and brown will be mine. Verse 34, and Laban said, oh that, were, it would, oh, that it were according to your word. So he removed that day the male goats that were speckled and spotted, all the female goats <laughs> that were speckled and spotted. There's a lot of that in here. Everyone that had come white in it and all the brown ones among the lambs and gave them into the hands of his sons Then he put three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flocks. Now Jacob took up for himself of green poplar and of almond and chestnut trees, peeled white stripes in them, and exposed the white with which was in the rods. And the rods which he had peeled, he set before the flocks in the gutters, in the watering troughs where the flocks came to drink, so that they should conceive when they came to drink, so the flocks conceived before the rods, and the flocks brought forth streaked, speckled, and spotted. What in the world's going on here? I mean, I really don't know, right? I'm not a cattle guy, and this is kind of bizarre, right? He comes up with this system and puts 
this poplar pole in front of the goats as they're mating. And then in his mind, he's thinking, well, then there's going to be more speckled and spotted. He has a plan, but ultimately it was the Lord who, who was blessing. In verse 40, then Jacob, I told you that it just got stranger and stranger, right? So first we have all this uh, sex going on with Jacob and all of his wives, and then there's sex with the cattle, and there's just, just a lot of sex in this chapter. In verse 40, when Jacob separated the lambs and made the flocks face toward the streaked and all the brown in the flock of Laban, but he put his own flocks by themselves and did not put them with Laban's flocks. So he continues to keep the flocks separated. And it came to pass whenever the stronger livestock conceived that Jacob placed the rods before the eyes of the livestock in the gutters that they might conceive among the rods. But when the flocks were feeble, he did not put them in. So the feeble were Laban's and the stronger Jacob. Thus the man became exceedingly prosperous, speaking of Jacob, and he had large flocks, female and male servants, and camels and donkeys. I want you to just quickly look at chapter 31, verses 12 and 13, because it brings clarity to this whole event that's happening with the goats. So this is the next chapter. We'll look at it next week, but verse 12. And he said, lift up your eyes now and see all of the rams which leap on the flocks are streaked, speckled, and gray-spotted. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. This is the angel of the Lord speaking to Jacob. I am the God of Bethel, where you were anointed the pillar and where you made a vow. Where you anointed the pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now arise and get out of this land and return to the land of your family. So right there from the angel of the Lord, God's message to Jacob is... God is the one who has blessed your cattle. God is the one who has blessed and brought forth the speckled and the spotted cattle. So Jacob had his plan, but ultimately God was the one who blessed him. So here's the application for us tonight, is there's many, many lessons for us of what not to do from Jacob. And we can really glean from those things. And I think we need to take it to heart that we reap what we sow and to be careful that we don't deceive others. And we definitely see some unhealthy things inside of Jacob's family. But what's the bigger picture that God is telling from Genesis to Revelation? And the bigger picture is of salvation. The bigger picture of, is the grace that comes through Jesus Christ. And God is showing us that the nation of Israel wasn't chosen because they were perfect but they were chosen as an expression of God's grace. And the beginnings of the nation of Israel and the continuing of the nation of Israel needs God's grace. And that salvation comes through Judah, the tribe of Judah. Jesus is born from the lineage of Judah to be the savior of our sins. And the application for us is Christ is in the mess. And I think a lot of times when we look at our closest relationships and we look at our families, we see mess. And it can be really discouraging, and it can be really overwhelming. And this is what I want all of us to be encouraged in, is Christ is in the mess. And Christ is in the business of bringing redemption to broken families that turn to him, that believe in him, and say, we're not trusting in our works, we're not trusting in our efforts, we're trusting in the name of Jesus. We're trusting in the finished work of Christ, and God, would, would you bless our family through your grace? And would you be in the midst of the mess uh, with us? And as we journey through the mess, Christ is in the mess with us to bring about his ultimate plan of salvation. And I don't think any of us desire that the testimony of our families would be, well, our family was perfect. We would hope that the testimony of our families would be the gospel, that Jesus Christ loves sinners, that Jesus Christ died for us and rose again and and we're a family that trusts in what Christ has done for us in the finished work of the cross. So wherever there's mess in your life, whether it's mess in family or mess in you individually, or you look and you go, man, the mess, it's so discouraging. Well, one is your mess is probably not quite as bad as Jacob's mess, right? And God blessed Jacob in spite of Jacob, really. He blessed Jacob in spite of Jacob for, for his own glory. 
And we don't say this to justify sin, but we say this to realize that God is a God of redemption. And that's what we get to celebrate in communion tonight. This morning in staff devotions, we were looking at Joshua chapter 4. When the children of Israel came into the promised land, their first step into enemy territory, God says, I want you to stop and go get some stones out of the Jordan River and build a memorial. I want you to take time to remember my faithfulness as you've come into the promised land. Doesn't seem like a very strategic move. And our memorial of God's faithfulness is the finished work of the cross. And one of the reasons why we take time to celebrate communion here at Rocky Mountain Calvary is we want to never forget the main thing. And the main thing is the broken body of Jesus Christ. And we get to hold on to God's faithfulness because Jesus has died for us. So come and dine with Christ tonight. Remember his faithfulness that's expressed upon the cross. And if you don't know Christ as your Savior, if you haven't come to that point of realizing that you're a sinner and you need a Savior, then tonight turn from your sin and turn to Christ and believe in him and invite him to be the Lord of your life, for him to be your master, to to take control of your life. Remember the New Testament was written in a Roman context and they knew what it meant for there to be a Lord, for there to be a master, for the Romans to have absolute control of their lives and, and Jesus is asking to have complete control of your life as you come to him in salvation. Jesus, I'm turning from sin, believing that you died for me and rose again, inviting you to be the Lord of my life, inviting you to take control of my life. Doesn't mean that you're gonna be perfect, but it does mean that there's that surrendering to Christ and he longs to save you and he longs to bring that forgiveness and redemption in your life. So let's stand together and we'll prepare for communion. Let's stand and let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are in the mess. You're in the mess of our lives and our relationships. And we see that in in Jacob's life. Seems like about as many things as could be backwards or backwards and And yet you're working in the midst of this to bring about your son, to bring about the nation of Israel. So Lord, we just pray in humility, Lord, over all of our families, Lord, that you would be gracious way beyond our works and way beyond our efforts through the finished work of the cross, that you would bring life into marriages and life into relationship with kids and that you would do a redemptive work, Father. I pray for any families tonight that just feel like their situation is beyond your redemption, that they would be encouraged, Father. We thank you that you're a God of grace. And Lord, it just moves us to want to love you and and serve you. Lord, I pray for anyone tonight that just feels like, man, there's such a mess in my life that God can't work in it, that they would turn that over to you and that you, Jesus, would come and bring a beautiful work of restoration and redemption. So we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.